From Sacramento, the Bishop's Radio Hour with Bob Dunning. Focusing on today's issues in the context of gospel values. Now, here's Bob Dunning on Relevant Radio. That's me. Welcome to you on this beautiful day the Lord has made. Appreciate you all being with us on the Bishop's Hour as we launch our 24th year on the air. And This indeed is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And we're glad to welcome in. Father John Healy, uh, Father, good to, good to hear your voice, uh, even if it's on the phone. Okay, thank you, Bob. Good to hear your voice, too, and Gabe. Yes, yes, indeed. Appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Uh, right, uh, we, we had your good friend Richard Hernandez, the, uh, the right, uh, yes. coordinator of the uh, Catholic HIV AIDS ministry on the program, uh, oh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, had a delightful conversation with him. Tell us, uh, take us back to the founding, the beginning of the HIV AIDS ministry here in the Diocese of Sacramento. You know, it went way back to 1986. I'll always remember it was the first few days of January, and there was a priest's funeral, and I was going across the road, and Bishop Quinn said, well, I want you to take care of AIDS ministry. <laughs> and when I got to the other side, I said, what did you say? And he said, take care of the AIDS ministry. So that's how it started. Wow. And I thought, uh, in the beginning, people thought, you know, I was a full-time in the job and so forth. So I thought maybe one of the best things to do, go down to San Francisco on a free day, and there was a big national conference there by the... And that, back then, um, AIDS was, it was re- relatively new in the in the in the country in terms of people's awareness of it. I think we may have lost Father Healy. I think uh, somehow we have uh, lost connection here, but we will, we will endeavor to uh, endeavor to get him uh, uh, back and, and uh, hooked up here. Uh, We, he was the founder of the Catholic HIV AIDS ministry. um, As he says, back in the, uh, Back in the 1980s, and we'll we will get him back up. Uh, this proves <laughs> it proves we're on live radio. I should uh, tell you about the uh, healing retreat coming up uh, for adult children of divorce, November 18 to 20. Uh, the Vallambrosa Retreat Center in Menlo Park weekend retreat retreat will include Holy Mass, opportunities for confession and adoration. You can. Uh, Contact them through the Archdiocese of San Francisco. Contact Ed Hopner. That's H-O-P-F-N-E-R, capital E, at sfarch.org. Again, uh, that will take place in Menlo Park. And it's not, uh, it's not too uh, early. In fact, uh, the clock is ticking on the uh, World Youth Day, which is uh, going to take place in Lisbon, in uh, late July, early August, uh, in Portugal, uh, there will be a contingent from Sacramento going as well, and you can sign up. Go to SCD, that's Sacramento Catholic Diocese, scd.org backslash WYD2023. Uh, they'll depart from San Francisco. It's all-inclusive, one of those uh, tour packages. Uh, depart from San Francisco, arrive in Lisbon, uh, uh, a lot of, lot of time to see the sights, a lot of time, st- time to uh, uh, be on your own, but an awful lot of time to be part of this great celebration uh, known as World Youth Day, which only comes around every, every three years or so, and, uh, and it moves all over the world, um, and that's, that's one of the beauties of it, and the people that have have been to World Youth Day will tell you it is just a, just a, a fabulous, fabulous event. Again, go to scd.org backslash WID2023, and you'll learn all about World Youth Day and how, how you can be part of the group of traveling from the Diocese of Sacramento. We have uh, Father John Healy back on the, on the line with us. Father, uh, you were telling us about going to uh, a gathering in San Francisco in the 1980s. That's right. You know, when I was appointed, I reckon I better get myself educated. And there was an international conference, basically by the Episcopal Church there. But that was most helpful. And I always remember the Catholic priest who got up there saying, you know, the people who have the disease of AIDS, especially those who are dying, 
want the official sacraments of the church. I want to make sure to get Holy Communion, confession, a proper burial, and so forth. And that kind of remained with me very much. When I came back to Sacramento, we started organizing things. We had a conference in October of 1986 where we asked a lot of the people from the legislature and the helping agencies all around Sacramento and our own Sacramento group. And we held it there at St. Rose, actually. Mm-hmm. And then Bishop Quinn was there, of course, God rest him. And, you know, so we kind of took off from there. In the beginning, we were somewhat scattered. People were doing sort of their own thing in different places. And, and that was fine because we were doing one-on-one ministry with people with the disease of AIDS. But then we kind of reckoned it's better if we could, especially our Catholic group, gather everyone together and connect us with the parishes, you know. And I think it was from there we really took off, you know, that was a, a, a personal ministry. And also giving people dignity, they could die with dignity. I was kind of shocked a few times when, you know, uh, patients told me their family wouldn't let them be buried in their own mm-hmm. lot. And, um, you know, a few stories like that, that, that were painful. I also was asking one man, he wasn't Catholic, but I was asking if he'd come to our conference and he said, sorry, he couldn't, but he didn't want his friends and family to know that his son had died of AIDS, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, people like Sister Redemptor then came and she just said she took care of a few people with AIDS, especially one person, and she also felt how, how lost they felt. They didn't want anyone to know they had the disease of AIDS, but wanted maybe to tell them afterwards. So it was heartbreaking, those kind of stories. And uh, I think bit by bit, we kind of got ourselves together. And, you know, our own mission, that was a primarily, you know, it was a spiritual mission, uh, but also a very pastoral uh, mission, you know, to walk with the person with AIDS. Um, I remember going to see one man, he was over off Broadway, and he was nearly dead, and he was... I had gone to another church, but he said to them, I want to die Catholic. (laughs) And when I went into him, he was kind of, uh, oh, he wasn't fully, but he just said to me, did you bring any one of those things? You know, you called them sacraments. (laughs) And and then he died. He died with peace, you know. So probably those were kind of our scattered beginnings, Bob. I think we did a good lot in the Catholic Church to pull all the members of the community together, the lay community and the religious community and, you know, when Bishop Wiegand came after Bishop Quinn, he also was fantastically positive. He had sent out a, a pastoral on it when he was in Salt Lake. And then when, when Bishop Soto came on, the first things he did in this diocese was he went into the CMF, the prison in Vacaville, where there had been up to 400 people with AIDS right down through the years for World right. AIDS Day. And that was He's made it very clear to us, you know, that he wants us to be a part of the ministry as well. It it changes all the time, and it has to change, you know. And Richard has been great in keeping things going, and you know, but there's a change of character all the time. <laughs> yeah, well, and you know, in in the early '80s, uh, AIDS was. It, it, at least in terms of the public consciousness, was a new disease. People didn't know what it was about. There was a lot of fear, obviously, and and people were getting very sick and dying, um, much more so than today, percentage-wise. Absolutely, you know, and I well remember there was one patient, and he was in a parish up in the mountains here, and somebody came after his pastor, you know, that he shouldn't let him come to communion because he'd have big problems, and... He, he left in the end this patient and went down to Mother Teresa's home, you know, gift of love down in the Bay Area, and he just felt so nourished by them there, you know, to be accepted. Uh, because people were very fearful. They, they had a real fear of things. We were training at Mercy General Hospital. We found out that when Hope House got established by Dan Delaney and Catholic Worker, uh, the patients couldn't actually die there, so we established a place at Mercy for, you know, when they'd come when they were near death and you take care of those. Mm-hmm. And we uh, we got together, trained the, the nurses and all. In the beginning, because hard, one or two nurses said their husbands said if they deal with AIDS patients, they won't come home and have dinner tonight with, uh-huh. with me. So we dealt with that. But it was a great, you know, uh, Sister Caritas was there like a mother hen and Sister Martin, you know, put her arms around them. And that went for maybe about 10 or 15 years. And again, 
You know, after a while, there was no need for that anymore because in the beginning, there was only about one nursing home in all of the state that uh, kind of let uh, eight patients in when they were near the end. And that was up in Placerville, and they had a great group there, St. Patrick's, in Placerville, you know. And right. then, bit by bit, patients began to be accepted. So so it's kind of a big beginning, and now it's obviously at a very different stage again, you know. So, But there, there, there's still those needs there. The needs are different, but they're, they're still there. Has, has the mission of the... HIV AIDS ministry changed since its beginning? You you know, in a way not. You know, we I suppose always said that our ministry is to bring the healing uh, of Jesus Christ, you know, to people with AIDS. Mm-hmm. That that was the primary uh, motivation for us. There were other motivations, you know, to stand up for justice for the people with AIDS, you know, to have a community get-togethers for them. So I thought the basic mission has always stayed the same. Uh, the living out of it was different. It changed. And I think we're in a different situation now again. You know, um, we, I suppose, here locally, where, you know, our ministry quite often is connecting with three or four more of the other agencies who are, uh, you know, who are helping also in the area with, with aid services. And then we have, you'll always have, I have about three or four people with AIDS that I've been kind of traveling with for for the last 30 years, you know, many times they were supposed to be dead, you know. I remember one, we got her to the hospital, it was probably 30 years ago, Holy Saturday night, and we thought she was dead, but she recovered and got all right. Wow. And then there's one or two people, one who had been in prison and mother, uh, what got Sister Adempta was just a wonderful mother hint to her, to him. And but when sister was kind of retiring, I couldn't. She handed him on to me that I should take care of him. Mm-hmm. And he's out now, and he's he's great. He was he was released by the Innocence Project, and he's always maintained his innocence that he was never, you know, he was falsely accused mm-hmm. and put in jail and got hurt there. His legs were nearly broken. His eye was almost torn out. And and yet today he's a wonderfully positive person, <laughs> trying desperately to work, you know, and then. We give a little bit of help with meals and things, with 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 rent, you know, and and so a few more like that. One or two of the others that I just kind of stay in contact with, uh, also, you know, just kind of like you become. They're sort of part of our family, mm-hmm. and it's almost like you can't can't let them go, <laughs> you know. So I think our our response is still, you know, such a great need. Often in the beginning, it was amazing, you know, they used to say, well, AIDS was a trendy uh, disease, which, yeah. and by that they meant that you were always on television and stuff, you sure. know, and, sure. uh, you know, so it's it's kind of different today, Bob, as I said, but it's still there, and Richard has done a great job, you know, keeping, the, keeping everything rolling, and he's just very organized, you know, and great to reach out to, people who wouldn't still be able to get into places like CARES. CARES has become called one community now, and it's not solely AIDS, you know, it's other other medical needs as well. So, so you know, that's, that's kind of where we are at the moment, Bob. So, obviously, treatment of AIDS has changed dramatically uh, since the 80s, uh, and people are not dying in, in the numbers that they, they were. Uh, and many, many people are, have it, quote-unquote, under control. Has that, has that changed the focus of the ministry at all? I, I think it has. You know, probably in people's minds, it's sort of like it has gone away, you know, and that's not 100% sure. There's places like the, certainly up to about 10 years ago, Sub-Sahara, Africa was the biggest, you know, mm-hmm. you'd go into cities and there'd be one in every four people there had AIDS. Right. And they got a good lot of help, you know, through Pfizer and, you know, and so to do much better, you know, trying to change the attitude. Sometimes it's very hard to say, you know, countries like India now has more than a million people. How many there, you know, have, have AIDS? And when I was there myself for a few weeks, it was almost like the effort to have enough to eat for one day was so much that you couldn't even figure out who had AIDS and who didn't have AIDS. You know, there were people with all kinds of diseases. Um, my, my suspicion would be that in some of those countries, there's still quite an incident of AIDS. Um, 
I suppose the developments, as always, new developments in, you know, in, in medicine and vaccinations, and they, they, they tried for an immunotherapeutic, as they used to say, that when somebody would have the disease of AIDS, the, the, the different, you know, if you like, the different medications that would be of help to them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of interesting, too, because I suppose for everything else, the COVID kind of wiped everything else out of our minds, you know. And you know, for the last three years, I suppose, you know, COVID has taken over so much that nobody is talking much about AIDS or maybe any other disease as well. So That's true. That's I, very true. Yeah, I, I think so, Bob. That's, that's kind of where we sit. Um, I, was, I was kind of thinking of it when, you know, this year we had our, uh, we had an All Hallows reunion here from people from all different parts of the world, you know, and we were in charge of it. We had it at Christ the King and it was celebrating... Uh, was, we just had a reunion of the All Hallows Seminary in Dublin, mm-hmm. and it, it established in 1842 to follow wow. the Irish of the famine all over the place. In 1942, 100 years later, the parish of All Hallows was opened in Sacramento, right. and that time almost 50% of the priests, for better or worse, were from All Hallows in the Diocese of Sacramento. Mm-hmm. And for our reunion this year, one of my one of my classmates got murdered out in South Africa, and another good friend of mine, uh, he was deported, you know, for, for for opposing the apartheid at that time, and he was put in jail, deported, and so forth. He's finally written a book, but you know they had so much AIDS in their parishes, uh, mm-hmm. but the other the injustice about what was happening in the townships and everything, um, you know, my. Three of my very close friends were in South Africa, and it was like that, that the AIDS thing was for a long time. But they did great work in establishing hospices and all of that, you know. So it's probably, as I said, you don't see much about it. I always keep my hand up a little bit to see if there's anything new, any new developments. (laughs) You know, so that's probably where we are at the moment, Bob. Uh, John Watkins was great when he was here, too, you know, helping out Catholics social services, and um, I think and now we're just trying to do the best we can, you know, and almost at the spot, which would be very healthy, that we would treat AIDS the same as everything else, you know, if a patient came into hospital for AIDS, it would be the same if you had a heart attack, or the same if you had the COVID, you know, or that we would kind of, that we had no special needs for people, that they were, they were just accepted and things would be just, and the greatest day, I think, is when we won't be needed anymore, you know, I Probably haven't quite got there yet, but we might be very close. You you moment. want to be out of business? Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, know. yes. You know, I suppose when we drove down this year, Father Tom Rallahan of our diocese here celebrated his seventy fifth year. You know, as a priest in the wow. diocese of Sacramento, he came from All Hallows, and he had all kind of ministries. You know, lots of them in prisons and so forth. And I suppose when we got all our people together there that evening, twenty second of June you know, from all over the world, and, and the bishops, Jaime and all were there. It was a kind of a, a, a look to back from 1842 mm-hmm. when John Hayne founded All Hallows and to send them out and, you know, the sense of mission that Father Tom, there he is now, I think, 98 years of age, and, you know, he, he just felt that call to come out and maybe bring the healing, the healing power of Jesus, you know, to, to what, whatever he met in the parishes or in the prison. And um, I still go down to the prison a good lot, even though in, in California medical facilities, they used to have about 400 there. Mm-hmm. Now it's, it would be very few, and they had a great hospice begun there because of the AIDS, uh, Dr. Alexander. And Father Pat Leslie was very, very instrumental in opening that hospice, you know. So it's kind of happy to see, too, Dr. Neil Flynn was also great in the community right, from the Med right. Center, and we worked very closely with, with all of them. And um, so hopefully, please God, we'll be happy when there's no need for us anymore. But <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. You know, and you mentioned all those great Irish priests. Uh, when I was growing up in this diocese, uh, we just had a succession of Irish priests in, in my parish, and, uh, uh, and uh, I still count among my friends many of the Irish priests in, in this uh, in this diocese, you know. It's, yeah, just, it's, it's, just... it's amazing, Bob, in the last year or two, 
we have a kind of a joke that those of us here in the retirement vi- village don't meet each other except out some event outside. But I've been to parishes like, you know, Burnley and up in, in um, Red Bluff, of course, and over to Tule Lake. Yeah. And I must say I was fascinated by finding, you know, you're driving 400 miles. I remember a few days there last year, uh, about six days, you had to travel 2,000 miles, you know, the parishes. And, and to look back at the priests who are there, you know, their their place every Sunday, they'd have something like 80 miles to go across to the different missions. To the mission and, churches, yeah. Yeah, and had no cars. And yet, I mean, here they were doing the best they could for all the local people. Whatever disease was there, they were bringing, you know, the ministry of Christ. And uh, little parishes, like I remember when I was in Burnley there last year, you said your mass at 9 o'clock Sunday morning. We went over then 18 miles to Fall River Mills. A wonderful mass, a Hispanic mass, and they always give you a big meal. And then over 40 miles to Beaver, and you had another mass at 1 p.m. And again, they have a little kind of a, a, a celebration after every mass. Everybody come and have a bite to eat, you know. And I thought, you know, there were small little parishes, but they're keeping going the, the mission of the Lord, you know, the light, the light of the healing of Jesus that through difficult. And it made me all conscious of, uh, again how difficult those parishes were, you know, and then the snow in the winter time and so forth. And yet to this day, they're proud of their little parish and they're full of life. Yeah, I, I, I know yeah. I know folks from Bieber. I know folks yeah. from Happy Camp, uh, you know, from Tule Lake. It's, yeah. it, uh, you know, the, the Cedarville, all the little mission yeah. churches. It just, oh my it, gosh, it, it tears at your heart. You know, Doris, uh, it's... It, it it just really pulls pulls at your heartstrings to, to see how faithful people are. Oh, un- unbelievable! I was reading one that last year it was a cold night up there, and I was just reading the history. Somebody had written of the parish. I started off. There was no church. There was no, no. He was living in his cars in mass on on, on on small little boxes if he could find them, and then traveling around about sixty miles. You know? Yeah. And and the tremendous dedication. Uh, one of the men born and raised here in the in the Sacramento region and I was just fascinated like at, at their faith and and their deep sense that Jesus mission you know was alive in them you know um, over our door and all hallows always was go teach all nations <laughs> and uh, you know that's and I'm happy delightful actually what happened this year with our big celebration of Christ the King and we invited we invited the new you know we invited all the seminarians that were here or maybe they could see also that this is a kind of a hinge now into a new day, and they are needed now. It's a new day, and we, we, we kind of need new people, if you like. But, you know, the connector, I suppose, into the past, Bob, and I suppose, you know, for me, people like Sister Mary Demter was unbelievable because she was just, she just went where the people with AIDS were, you know, and just visited them and, you know, didn't care who thought what, but was there all the time and gave it her gave it her all. You know, she was, as I said, kind of appalled that one or two patients she nursed through death, you know, felt so alone and abandoned, and she was there for them. And when I look back, it's kind of people, I suppose, rather than anything else you look at and what, what they did and what they meant to do. So I'm probably gabbing along too much. No, no, no. <laughs> Father, I could... Talk with you for a long, long time. We we sure appreciate all all you do. Uh, do you have any fundraisers uh, uh, planned in the next uh, few months? You know, we don't really. We've had uh, we may do something. I was talking to Richard again. We had a one fairly recently. We may do something around Christmas, but we haven't formally done anything as yet. Uh, Bob, we got some good donations as well from people, which was great. And uh, you know the. So we'll, we'll work along, and when you need a bit of money, we'll shout. <laughs> oh, very good. Well, Father, always uh, always a joy. Appreciate you uh, taking the time to be all with right. us today, and thanks for all the great work. Uh, all right. Bless you, Bob. Bless Gabe, and bless all the listeners. Bless you, too, God Father. Thanks week. thanks so much. That's, Bye that, now. Thank that's you. Father John Healy, the director of the uh, Catholic HIV AIDS ministry here in the Diocese of Sacramento. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back with more on the Bishop's Hour right after this. This portion of the Bishop's Hour is brought to you by a grant from the St. Vincent de Paul Society. Drop by and shop at the thrift store, a beautiful, beautiful thrift store at 2275 Watt Avenue. Open Mondays through Saturdays from 10 to 8 and Sundays from 11 to 6. 
They also accept donations at the store, donations of furniture, appliances, clothing, books, everyday household items. Your donations help to fund the many projects of the St. Vincent de Paul Society throughout the Diocese of Sacramento. Do such wonderful, wonderful work, and the thrift store is uh, one of the the ways they uh, raise the funds to help people throughout the diocese, and also uh, uh, many of their clients are able to access the uh, thrift store for uh, items that they need. You can uh, give them a call. They will come pick it up as well, but you can uh, give them a call. They're at 916-972-1212. And remember, again, the thrift store is open uh, seven days a week at 2275 Watt Avenue right here in Sacramento. Well, Bishop Soto refers to Christ the King Retreat Center as the jewel of the diocese, and indeed it is. What a beautiful oasis it is. It's located in Citrus Heights, uh, right in the hustle and bustle of the city, and you feel like you're getting away from it all when you uh, turn off the main road and just uh, uh, come into Christ the King Passionist Retreat Center. Christ the King has served Northern California and the Diocese of Sacramento for over 60 years through parish weekend retreats, individual spiritual direction, and a variety of other programs. For information on all the programs that they offer, including residential programs, give them a call. They're at 916-725-4720, or you can visit them at 6520 Van Maren Lane in Citrus Heights. And we certainly thank uh, the St. Vincent de Paul Society and Christ the King Passionist Retreat Center for their fine and long-standing support of the Bishop's Hour. Hi, this is Brian Visitation, Director of Media and Communications for the Diocese of Sacramento. You're listening to the Bishop's Hour with Bob Dunning. Thank you, Brian. We, we had a chance uh, the other day to uh, hook up with Lincoln Snyder, uh, the former uh, superintendent of schools here in the Diocese of Sacramento, now the president and CEO of the NCEA, the National Catholic Educational Association, back in Washington, D.C. And uh, we had a wonderful conversation with Lincoln about all, some great news involving our Catholic schools nationwide. And we're going to bring you that interview now. Educational Association. Uh, Lincoln, good to hear your voice. Yeah, great to talk to you. It's been way too long, Bob. It has been way too long. Lincoln, you've relocated to the East Coast, is that correct? I have. You know, as much as I love my hometown, it turned out that Sacramento to Washington, D.C. was kind of a lousy commute. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, my my dear family and I are living in Falls Church, Virginia. Very good. Well, that's a beautiful area. A beautiful area, nice people, and uh, a great state. The Commonwealth of Virginia. Indeed, the Commonwealth of Virginia. There's 49 and, uh, states in a Commonwealth, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Just like 49 states have uh, counties and then there's parishes in Louisiana. That's Everybody, right. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. So uh, all kinds of news, uh, a lot about the pandemic and test scores and et cetera. Explain what's going on. And, and uh, we don't like to compare but other people are making the comparisons as to how well the Catholic schools have done uh, and the enrollment uh, going up. Yeah, so we had a big announcement last week with uh, um, the, the U.S. Department of Education has their, uh, their report. It's called the Nation's Report Card or the mm -hmm. NAEP. And your, your uh, listeners can Google that if they're curious. But uh, Catholic schools uh, performed very well on that assessment. Um, so it was actually kind of neat. I was at the National Press Club, which is uh, you know, a neat old building in, in Washington, D.C., and was there for the live rollout of, uh, of the test results from the U.S. Department of Education. And our Catholic schools were uh, essentially the top performers in the nation for, uh, for academic outcomes uh, over the COVID period. Wow. That's, that's just... Is, is this... Uh a change, or is this just, I mean, I think the, the results are actually dramatic. They are. Well, I mean, I, I, I will say, first of all, it, it didn't come as a surprise to me. I, and you and I talked uh, all the time, all throughout COVID, about what our teachers were doing in Sacramento, you know, making the, making the sacrifice to go back to school in person as early as possible and being there for the kids and and really, you know, our Catholic schools offered the most in-person instruction in the Sacramento area uh, throughout COVID of any system. And that story played out across 
174 other dioceses and 5,900 other schools nationally. So, I mean, we were very proud of how we did in Sacramento, but the truth is Catholic educators everywhere bent over backwards to offer much as much deaf time as possible to students during, during COVID. And I'm you know, very proud of our, our team to say that, that we're now see, seeing the, uh, the fruits of that labor in, in the testing results that's coming back. And some of those testing results, um, state by state, were very troubling. Yeah, you know, I, I think that what we've learned is that teaching matters. You know, and when you're not in front of kids, yep. they don't learn as much. And, um, you know, we know that, that and, and this is not to assign blame to any one person, we know that, that every system faced, um, you know, health concerns and political challenges and, and uh, collective bargaining issues and all sorts of reasons that, that um, you know, made it difficult for a lot of folks to come back in person. But teaching matters. And, uh, you know, for us as a Catholic system, well over 93% of our schools were in person last year at the earliest possible date. So I think this is, again, a national trend for us as church, is that the second we had the opportunity to serve kids in person, we did. And um, the outcome was that if you look at the data, if Catholic schools were a state, we would have been the highest-performing state of the nation yep. Uh, yep. throughout the COVID period for our results. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's, that's the simplest metric to, 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 to really understand. Is Yeah, if Catholic schools had been uh, the 51st state, uh, they would have been number one. Uh, Indeed. Now, they give these tests, what, to fourth graders and eighth graders? Is that right? Fourth graders and eighth graders. And this has been a, st- a test that's been running for decades and decades and decades. And it's the best lateral test we've got. It's kind of a neat test because it, you never find out as an individual school how your kids did. It's not like the SAT where somebody gets, like, a grade or a score at the end of right. it. They administer this test, and then it tracks the exact same things now that it did when they started it. And so you know how a kid did in 2022 vis-a-vis a kid in 1990 because it's it's measuring the performance against the same standards. And so, yeah, U.S. Department of Education sends out a letter to principals and say, hey, you've been randomly selected to be a star school for this year. We're going to show up in the show. They bring the computers. They bring... That, you know, they bring the, the, the test givers, everything. So as a, as a teacher, sorry, rather, as a principal, rather, he's like, okay, yeah, come in and test my kids. They show up, they bring everything, they run the test, it takes two hours, they leave. And then um, months later, you get this, uh, you get this study uh, explaining how different states and different systems did. Can we, as you look at the state data as, as an educator, can you can you draw any? I, I, you know, I tried to connect the dots, and uh, you know, I saw states that surprised me that were high, and states surprised me that were low. Not not that they were high; they were higher than by, uh, compared sure. by comparison. Nobody was high other than the Catholic schools. <laughs> well, you know, and that's a great question, and people do play that game uh, of trying to figure out how you did. You know, it's not the only test that out, is out there, so. We have friends at companies like Renaissance, for example, that Sacramento uses um, that, to, to do formative assessment. Um, and so you, you can look at the, the different data sets and say, okay, well, we did, did this well on this test, and we did this well on that test. And you can say, okay, how much time were kids in, in school? When did they come back? Um, you know, some places that didn't have as much desk time, like uh, LA City Unified, did comparatively well on this test. And so, mm-hmm. so like, so you look at all the big public school districts, L.A. City Unified, and, you know, God, God bless L.A. City Unified for that outcome. Um, you know, that's, uh, it appears, according to the data, they serve kids well, despite all the challenges they had with coming back in class instruction. So, yeah, so everybody's very interested to, to see, um, to see what, uh, what's behind the numbers. Yeah, and I guess when I talk about connecting the dots, uh, does have, and are people looking at you know amounts spent per child uh, statewide that kind of things or or how how do you evaluate that data whether whether you were one of the higher performing or lower performing states? Yeah, a lot of it is deductive. Where you say, okay, well, we did this well and not that well. So how much desk time did we have? When did we come back to school? How much money did we have for pupil? How were we spending the money? Um, you know, so like L.A. 
um, L.A., for example, said, well, we spent X number of dollars on doing uh, after-school tutoring for kids in English and math, and so we think that's part of the reason we did well, for example. So um, the, the U.S. Department of Education is actually very friendly. They've got data scientists, and they're just as curious as we are as to, okay, why did we do so well? And so, um, you know, they've dumped this big <laughs> data set, uh, and uh, we'll be having that very conversation for the next two years until the next test to come up with our best hypotheses as to why we did well. Um, but at the end of the day, we know for Catholic schools that, you know, our teachers were in person. Most importantly, you know, it, one of the things we know from studies, it's not just the desk time. When you show a kid that you're really invested in them as mm -hmm. an individual and how they do, they respond to that love and they put more into their learning. And so part of the reason Catholic schools have always done well is we know that that, that mission approach that you know, we work really hard to cultivate as, as church um, does have an effect on how we, well kids learn, all of the things aside. So you have all these different effects. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we'll, I've, I've worked in conversation right now with our friends over at the Department of Education to, um, to study that. So, okay, we think we may have done better because of this. What, what do you think the data tells us? Wow, that's, yeah, that, that, I'm sure over there they're going, okay, you guys, you guys have the magic potion here. And, you know, I heard it in, in all the times, Lincoln, that I would uh, talk to, uh, whether they're principals or presidents at our Catholic high schools or principals at our elementary schools, uh, they said what, what really got them through that pandemic was, a sense of mission on the part of the faculty and and the, and the students and the parents uh, all kind of together on the same team uh, through difficult times uh, and uh, you weren't having faculty members saying well you know I didn't sign up for double duty here or I didn't sign up for you know teaching remotely which which happened early on uh, you know I didn't sign up for all this extra stuff and nobody said that it was like I signed up to educate these kids, the whole kid, you know, uh, not just, you know, uh, not just their mind, but, but everything. And, and as a result of that, it's, it's just what you say, the, the results are astounding. Yeah, you know, we're, it was, the, the pandemic was stressful for everybody. And, and um, you know, we, we didn't really know. We, we had our best scientific hypotheses again is, okay, well, if we do this, then that'll help, or if we do that, that won't help. But, you know, I, I, the Catholic system chose to be all in for being in person as much as possible, and I mean, we're very proud to say that we offered in-person instruction. Our kids did not get sick. We did not have fatalities. Um, so a lot of the worst fears were mitigated through very hard work. It wasn't coincidence. I mean, you recall we were masked up and doing screenings, and I mean, everybody just bent over backward to get kids back into school and keep them there. But, um, you know, the outcome is that our uh, students performed, uh, performed really well. Like I said, we're very proud of the fact that, that um, you know, we, we did off, go that extra mile, and, and I think that's showing up in the numbers. Yeah, Not that we don't have our work cut out for us, and so I, I do want to talk a little bit about areas where everybody still needs to grow, but, you know, all in all, we, we see that our kids did benefit from being in Catholic school. Yeah, you, it wasn't, you weren't defying local authorities or health uh, guidance or anything else. You were strictly following it, but doing what you could within that framework. And Well, sure, absolutely. Governor Newsom and, and the California Department of Public Health came out and said, if you do the following seven things, you're going to be able to mitigate the spread of COVID in schools and operate in class successfully. So we did them, and it worked. So we were not, we were not going counter to the health authorities. Right. If anything, we were following every single suggestion. But because of that, we were the system that was back in school. It's kind of this ironic thing that, you know, actually we were the rules followers. Right. And it turned out it was pretty good, sound scientific advice. I mean, I know we debated, debated a lot of things around the edges. And different things were controversial. But at the end of the day, they said, here's a list of seven things. Do all these, and you'll be safe. And we did it. And now that we didn't have, you know, quarantines and surprises and things, but, you know, nobody died on our watch. Kids stayed in class. Um, you know, the, the outcomes were, were positive. Yeah, let's talk about what you were just saying about uh, other areas where, you know, you, you are concerned about. Yeah, you know, I, I think that it's a proud moment as, as 
Catholic schools, you know, I, I'm, I'm fearful as an American for this generation. Everybody's behind a little bit. Even for us, eighth grade scores in math are not what we'd like them to be, you know, and, and you think about when you get into eighth grade in mathematics, you're having to learn things like algebra, for example, mm-hmm. and, and um, it's not, at e- not as easy to t- teach at home or, or via Zoom, and, um, you know, and desk time matters, and so you know, even for us, we still had disruption, and our kids are still a little bit behind in some areas, so it's not like we're um, gloating. Uh, you know, we know that we have our work cut out for us, too. I mean, I, as, I'm, as, as I'm giving my talks nationally now, um, we have to focus really hard to make sure our kids end up where they would have been if COVID had never happened. And so that's going to be a heavy lift because COVID affected everybody, and it's not just uh, academically but also emotionally. Mm-hmm. You know, a million Americans died. We know that every family suffered losses either immediately within the family or for, you know, friends' families who lost someone. So, uh, yeah, you know, we, we, we know that, that it's not like we can forget about COVID like it never happened, even as the Catholic system having done relatively well. We've got our work cut out for us. Um, but that stated, it's an achievable goal. We just have to focus on it. Um, you know, and for, I think for everybody out there, you know, and numbers don't tell stories the way people tell stories, but I, I to sum it up succinctly, um, you know, th- this generation of students is going to need extra help because they're not, I mean, and I mean nationally, I'm not talking about Catholic schools now, but, but schools nationally, mm-hmm. you see some groups of kids not recovering or having fallen so far behind that it's going to be very challenging for them to recover, or they're already well into high school and they don't have time to recover. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I really do feel that, that the top issue for education is making sure, okay, what, what can we do to help American students nationally at all levels, all demographics, all kinds of schools, to make sure that we don't end up with, like, a lost generation of kids who are all graduating from high school and then college behind. Uh, you know, we, we, I think we owe it to them to, to really make this the top goal getting them accelerated through these problems. So, yeah, that's that's the question I had is uh, I was looking at all the statewide data almost like I was looking at football scores or something, you know, uh-huh. and and it says, "Oh, this this state uh the math proficiency was only 34% of where they should be." Uh-huh. And I'm going, "Okay, so that's troubling and yeah, we're blaming the pandemic and etc., but what can we do?" For those students that are so unproficient in math, what what what's where's the remediation for that? Sure, and so we're talking about acceleration and not remediation. Here's the difference: remediation would be go back and reteaching a course that a kid already failed. Mm-hmm. Okay, acceleration means that you're looking at what's essential for a kid to learn before they get to the next level. So if you think of a house, in any house, you have load-bearing walls. Then you have partition walls or architectural walls, you know. And so when you build a house, you have to, or when you're remodeling a house, you can take out the demising walls, but you can't take out the load-bearing walls. Right. And so the focus right now for learners has to be on uh, those load-bearing walls. You know, my colleague Julie Vogel says that uh, mathematics is relentlessly cumulative. In other words, you have to learn one thing to make it to the next thing. (laughs) And in math, there's some things that are nice to learn, but there's some things that you have to learn to make it to the next year. And so for us teachers, we have to focus on teaching kids the things that they absolutely have to learn to pass them on to the next grade. This is not a time to focus on all of the the, uh, non-load-bearing walls, we got to build the house with the load-bearing, load-bearing walls, first and foremost. I didn't know you majored in architecture. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a, enough time in remodeling school facilities I had to learn a thing or two. But, <laughs> uh, don't, don't, don't ask me to build the building, Bob, please. <laughs> uh, uh, we need our kitchen remodel, Lincoln. <laughs> so... Here, you, uh, for people that don't know, Lincoln was the superintendent of schools here in the Diocese of Sacramento before uh, uh, going national on us. And uh, uh, describe describe your 
your day, your week, your month now as a, a national director, uh, spend a lot of time in, in at the Capitol? Do you spend a lot of time traveling? How, 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 is, how does that, how is your job duties? How, how's that changed? Well, it's funny. I actually did just spend a day at the Capitol with a, a couple hundred of my closest friends, including uh, Executive Director uh, Katie Parada. Oh, wow, from Sacramento. Yeah, and Samara Palco, who's our new director of the California Catholic Conference Education Department, mm-hmm. uh, along with Lori Power and Tasha Tillotson. So we, we do an event every year called the Catholic Leadership Summit. And uh, so we decided to work with the United States Camp- Conference of Catholic Bishops, the USCCB, to do a Hill Day. So everybody came into town. We trained them on advocacy. And then we went and met with our senators' offices and representatives' offices. And, you know, my case got to meet with the uh, minority leaders office and the uh, house minority leaders office and the, the people who actually write the bills for the mm-hmm. house and the senate and talk about uh educational choice and religious liberty so it was uh yeah it was a really fun day out you know there's a lot of obviously it's a big um big year for um elections and right. not to not to get into politics but i can say on the on the technical side you know, there's people that are writing things, and you want the people that are writing the bills to be very aware of, sure. you know, what, what works for the church and what wouldn't serve the church well. And we've got 5,940 schools, we've got 146,000 educators, and we've got 1.7 million kids. Wow. And we've got the best test scores in the nation. So, yeah, yeah a lot yeah. of my job is just advocating. Um, you know, we're not the lobbyist, USCCB is, uh, but we do collect all the data and help um, tell the story of why uh, Catholic schools are such a gem and so worthy of uh, preservation for the nation, not just for the church. Yeah, uh, you know, it's so well said. You know, if, if I'm if I'm a congressperson, a U.S. senator, or a House of Representatives, and and I'm concerned about education, which I should be because my constituents are concerned about it, and here's a an organization that represents 1.7 million students, and they just blew the top off the test scores. Uh, the, the led every state in the nation with all the different demographics in our country. These guys were number one, and that's a nationwide score for you guys, um, encompassing Catholic schools in every state. Uh, I got, I got to, I got to listen to you and see what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, we, um, you know, we we are very humble as as church as we should be. We're a church for goodness sake. We're supposed to be humble. Uh, you know, that stated, we, we have a, a brilliant system that, that serves communities really well. Uh, I think if you looked at that data, for example, kids who are on free and reduced lunch in Catholic schools, um, which, you know, there might be a stereotype that Catholic schools are just for rich kids. It's not true. If kids who were getting free lunch at Catholic schools, that would be generally considered poverty line or below, mm-hmm. if they were a state, they'd be the third best ranking state in the nation, very right. close to the top. Wow, and so uh, and you know that, and it really wasn't a big difference between us and number one. So um, you know, we, we know that Catholic schools are serving the church community, but we also know, for example, we're serving kids of lesser means really well too. And so um, you know, we, we we know that Catholic schools produce servant leaders. Uh, we know that we can be relied on for teaching dialogue and civic values. Uh, you know, for us, we do it for evangelization because we want to st- spread the good news of Jesus Christ. But there's civic value in what we do too, and we like telling that story. Yeah, amen. Yeah, there is civic value in it. There's tremendous civic value in it. In fact, we could we could use uh, some civic value in our country right now for sure. Absolutely. I mean, we. I mean, we're very proud of the fact that you know, we've got data showing that Catholic schools just don't get good test scores. We form servant leaders in Christ, and we see people engaged in serving their communities after a Catholic education. And we also do the best job of teaching people how to have discourse and dialogue with people that might share different beliefs. Yeah, and you know, if you look at uh, just elected officials or, or CEOs or uh, people in the workforce, etc., it's not partisan, there, there's, you know, there's, there's Catholics throughout all, you know, different political persuasions and uh, uh, jobs, and etc. You know, it's not like, well, all the Catholics are over here and, all, you know, everybody else is over here. It's not the way it is. The Catholics are uh, permeating throughout, throughout it all. Lincoln, we are, 
against the clock here. We're flat out of time. I think I could talk to you for three or four more hours, but thanks for the, <laughs> the great work you're doing. I'm, I'm uh, pleased with the test results and uh, um, know that you folks are, uh, all our kids are in, in good hands. So thanks so much, and God bless you and your family and uh, your work, and we'll look forward to our paths crossing again soon. Absolutely, Bob. Thank you so much. Always happy to talk. I, I appreciate the conversation. Great. Thanks so much, Lincoln. That's Lincoln Snyder, who is the president and CEO of the National Catholic Educational Association, the national organization representing all of our Catholic schools throughout all 50 states. That's going to do it for us for today. Thanks for listening. God bless everyone. We'd like to thank all the wonderful people and organizations, uh, businesses in town, uh, and throughout the Diocese of Sacramento, who have provided underwriting for the Bishop's Hour, uh, some in the last few years, some uh, have been with us for a very long time. If you would like to be an underwriter for the Bishop's Radio Hour, uh, it's a wonderful opportunity to, to support this mission and also to support the diocese and also uh, to get some uh, recognition for uh, your organization or for your business. The easiest way to do this is to uh, give us a shout, send us an email, radio at scd.org, and we can give you all the details about uh, helping to underwrite the Bishop's Radio Hour. Again, that's radio at scd.org. This portion of the Bishop's Hour is brought to you by a grant from the Mercy Foundation, enriching lives in the Sacramento region through Sisters of Mercy Ministries in healthcare, education, housing, and the care for the poor and elderly. For the Mercy Foundation, philanthropy is one of the most powerful expressions of compassion and love. Just as many people in our community need a hand, countless others are reaching out to them with comfort and hope. You can express your care and concern for the less fortunate with a gift to the Mercy Foundation. Uh, you can give them a call, 916-851-2700. That's 916-851-2700. And you can be confident that fully 100% of your contribution will support the Sisters of Ministry of Mercy Ministry or ministries that you choose. And what a wonderful treasure Easter's Catholic Books and Gifts has been for all of us here in the diocese as they uh, uh, transition uh, into uh, uh, new ownership and management. Uh, they continue to offer wonderful workshops, wonderful uh, uh, resources for the Catholic community throughout the Diocese of Sacramento. Not only does Easter's provide a wide array of Catholic books, both current releases and longtime classics, but they also sponsor a number of valuable workshops and lectures throughout the year. They're, they're located at 6916 Sunrise Boulevard in Citrus Heights. Give them a call, 916-338-7272. We also receive a generous underwriting support by Crumley & Associates, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services. If you have questions about retirement, Crumley & Associates can help you with their confident retirement approach that can help define a clear roadmap to get you where you want to go. You can uh, contact them, get all the details at Crumley & Associates, 7956 California Avenue in Fair Oaks. They're at 916-638-4600. That's 916-638-4600. Four six zero zero, and we uh, are, are certainly uh, appreciative of the uh, fine and uh, long-standing support of the Mercy Foundation, of Easter's Catholic Books and Gifts, and of Crumley and Associates. This portion of the Bishop's Hour is brought to you by a grant from the St. Vincent de Paul Society. Drop by and shop at their thrift store, a beautiful, beautiful thrift store at 2275 Watt Avenue. Open Mondays through Saturdays from 10 to 8 and Sundays from 11 to 6. They also accept donations at the store, donations of furniture, appliances, clothing, books, everyday household items. Your donations help to fund the many projects of the St. Vincent de Paul Society throughout the Diocese of Sacramento. Do such wonderful, wonderful work, and the thrift store is uh, one of the, the ways they uh, raise the funds to help people throughout the diocese, and also uh, many of their clients are able to access the uh, thrift store for uh, items that they need. You can uh, give them a call. They will come pick it up as well, but you can uh, give them a call. They're at 916-972-1212. And remember, again, the thrift store is open 
uh, seven days a week at 2275 Watt Avenue right here in Sacramento. Well, Bishop Soto refers to Christ the King Retreat Center as the jewel of the diocese, and indeed it is. What a beautiful oasis it is. It's located in Citrus Heights, uh, right in the hustle and bustle of the city, and you feel like you're getting away from it all when you... uh, turn off the main road and just uh, uh, come into Christ the King Passionist Retreat Center. Christ the King has served Northern California and the Diocese of Sacramento for over 60 years through parish weekend retreats, individual spiritual direction, and a variety of other programs. For information on all the programs that they offer, including residential programs, give them a call. They're at 916-725- 4720, or you can visit them at 6520 Van Maren Lane in Citrus Heights. And we certainly thank uh, the St. Vincent de Paul Society and Christ the King Passionist Retreat Center for their fine and longstanding support of the Bishop's Hour.